All right, let's bring in Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion, host of Masters in Business and, of course, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, great to have you on the first time since we got an election result and uh, really the first time since that long, long count. And we've seen markets churn both on that and, of course, the Pfizer news. How are you supposed to read these markets? What are they pricing in? That's a really good question. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. The Democrats winning both. Well, the trade-off is we're likely to see much more fiscal stimulus, but we're also likely to see somewhat higher taxes. And and that's quite a... uh, that's quite a challenge. Um, right now, the assumption seems to be that we're going to have some form of divided government, and arguably, that's not the worst situation under normal times for the markets. I will say, in in the midst of an emergency or a crisis like a pandemic, you do want to see cooperation across the aisle. You do want to see both parties try and working together. I have said on the show before. I am shocked that we have not gotten a follow-through to the stimulus from the first quarter uh, heading into the election, and now uh, we've been hearing noise that the Trump administration has no interest in pursuing it uh, between now and and the uh, formal inauguration on January. So the economy could get a little dicey uh, over the next two months. Right. In fact, the latest just out from our Saleha Mosin saying that the Trump administration is actually stepping back, according to people familiar with the situation. And that's leaving it up to, you know, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, which really is not very consoling at all. Nancy Pelosi wanting, you know, uh, something like $2.4 trillion and Mitch McConnell doesn't even want a trillion, really. That's a huge, huge difference, Barry. Yes. Yeah. Well, a trillion dollars. Go figure. It's, yeah. it's a lot of money. And so it makes those two races in Georgia really, really significant. I I think while everybody is looking in the wrong direction, we're all looking at this this all these silly litigation trying to fight the uh, the results. I I think the legal team of of the Trump administration is now 0 for 12, um, or arguably 1 for 13 if you count moving 10 feet away to six feet away is a victory. But other than that, you know, courts don't fool around. You're there as an officer of the court, as an attorney on either side. And there are all sorts of rules. You can't, what you could get away with on Fox News, you can't get away with in front of a judge and say, there was fraud. And they ask you for evidence. And if you don't have any, you're putting your license and your career at risk. And so... The the track record has been pretty weak for, for all these broad claims of, of nationwide fraud. So far, there's no evidence. And the companies involved, some of the law firms involved, are putting themselves at risk. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Um I guess they're taking the business for now. Barry, when you talk to, you know, your clients and also some of your wealthy investor friends, what are they saying to you about the situation? I presume that they're pretty happy with everything and, and, and except obviously for the coronavirus still raging around the world. Well, those who, who have sort of stepped away from the markets are, are not exactly happy. And, and we've seen a number of hedge funds and others sort of take the let's wait until the dust clears, which is is 
turns out not to be a, a great decision, at least this, this time around. Generally speaking, the expectation is that markets are going to continue doing what they're doing regardless of what happens with the election. We, we've noticed this you know, throughout history, whether it was Pearl Harbor or JFK assassination or, you know, go, go down the list of, of earth-shaking events, markets have a tendency to wobble for a little bit and then just go right back to what they were doing. So personally, I'm looking forward to the noise levels coming down. I was kind of rooting mm. in 2016 after that election for, okay, now we're done with politics. Can we get back to our normal life? The I think people are somewhat shocked that post-2016, we really never returned to normal. It, it, it was like a continuous campaign for 24 years. Uh, for, yes, 24 for full, years. You're right. Four years. Right. I would love to just put politics on the back burner and focus a little bit on other things in life. It would be nice to see my Twitter feed just sort of calm down a bit. Yeah, those notifications were very definitely very grueling and we won't have that from the Biden team, that's for sure. So Barry, you know, now that the dust is settling a little bit, we still have everything else out there, right? Lack of stimulus, coronavirus just going exponential in the United States and across the world. And um, markets still keep, you know, pumping away. I mean, What's going to burst the bubble in this market? I'm not suggesting it's a, it's a bubble in the traditional sense, but there's very definitely some exuberance in there, isn't there? You know, things that are unsustainable eventually run out of steam, eventually stop running. Uh, it's arguable that this market is uh, is getting tired. It, there There are some signs that the stock market has been pricey, but just look around at some of the earnings that have started to come out. We, we may end up being surprised by how quickly uh, the profit side of this recovers. And to me, that's what, that's what is going to drive this. It, there are two factors that we look at. One is multiple expansion, and, and that's certainly responsible for a big part of the gains. People willing to pay more and more to own the same stock. But increasing profits is something we should not underestimate. And let me just remind everybody over the course of the next year, all these companies are going to have really, really easy comparables. 2020 profits were way low, and the market was looking past them. And so when we're in Q2 of, of 2021 or Q3, we're looking back at an environment where profits were either tiny or non-existent. And so maybe that's part of what the market is looking at and seeing over the next four quarters. But comps can't do it, can they, Barry? I mean, surely there's a, a baseline of economic activity that the market needs in order to be, you know, happy with particular stocks. Yeah, um, no doubt about it. And the the I would, you know, we all tend to create these narratives after the fact. Uh, I'm wondering if some of the market enthusiasm is the thought that, hey, the new White House is going to, you know, nobody wants to do the difficult decisions up front, the painful decisions, so that you can thrive in the future. I think the Biden administration is going to do all of the difficult COVID-19-related things, a national mask mandate, a temporary lockdown, um, some form of a CARES Act II, some form of a stimulus, maybe even invoking the, the Defense Authorization Act to get more PPE to where it has to go. Uh, and so that, 
had we done that a year ago, the economy would be much better off. Had we done that in the beginning of 2020, we would probably not be dealing with as much of a, a spike as we're seeing. We're going to have to get through the next three or four months. It's not going to be easy, but the expectation is on the other side we'll all be closer to getting back to normal uh, under this administration than the sort of laissez-faire, don't worry about the coronavirus, it'll take care of itself approach of the current administration. We're awaiting Fed Chair Jay Powell, ECB President Christine Lagarde and BOE Governor Andrew Bailey to address the ECB's annual forum. They'll be discussing central banks in a shifting world. While we wait for the start of that, we can ask Barry Rittles about central banks in a shifting world. Barry Rittles, of course, a Masters in Business podcast host, among other things. Barry, you know, the world shifted 12 years ago when we had the financial crisis and, and central banks got on board. And they sort of, I feel like they stretched that elastic band, right? Where can they go to from here? Well, I think if we learned anything from the first quarter of uh, 2020, it's it's time to pass the baton to the fiscal side of things, not the monetary side of things. When when you're at the zero bound, um, what what are we somewhere like? The 62 percent of um, of sovereign bonds are now yielding negative rates. I mean that is a quite quite a statistic and there are all sorts of problems with negative rates or potential problems i i don't know how much more we can ask of our central banks um i don't want to say they're out of ammo but you're at a certain point you're you're just asking uh you're using the wrong tool for the job and i think we've been asking too much of our of our central bankers around the world yeah, I mean, I was speaking with distressed debt investor Bruce Richards yesterday, and you know, he talked about the aftermath of the financial crisis and how it took a couple of years to get four trillion dollars, you know, through the Federal Reserve system and into the economy. That happened in five weeks after the pandemic, after the Fed went to action this time round. I mean, that's some crazy acceleration, right there, Barry. Well, keep in mind, it was it was the one-two punch, the combination of monetary policy, and a $3 trillion fiscal stimulus. You know, what the Fed does has to work its way through a a series of mechanisms typically associated with credit and borrowing. And that doesn't happen instantly, especially in the midst of a pandemic. If you recall, lots and lots of of small businesses and and households were complaining that in the middle of the pandemic, the credit market had tightened up so much and banks really weren't lending. So so that really hamstrings the Fed's ability to affect a lot of the local economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the fiscal stimulus, the direct lending to small business companies that promised not to uh, lay off staff, um, uh, that, that has an immediate impact. So too uh, it does the proposal to use federal funds to steer money to states and municipalities that, unlike the federal government, are unable to deficit spend. And so they're in a genuine danger of running out of money uh, before the year uh, ends, and that includes things like police and fire and, and ambulance and teachers and hospitals. They're in a bad way, and the hope was that the new fiscal stimulus would steer a trillion dollars or so to local states and cities. Um, uh, There was some back and forth that this was a blue state 
phenomena, and therefore the Trump administration was very much against it. But when you look at where the pandemic is now running amok, it's as many red states, if not more, than blue states. And I wouldn't be surprised if, as this gets worse and worse, the tone uh, amongst whoever is running the Senate starts to soften because some of the projections are pretty horrific mm. over the next three or four months. Yeah, for sure. Barry, we're about to go to the panel, but who's your guest for Masters in Business next? Oh, this week, Penny Pennington, one of the highest yeah. ranking women in finance. She's, uh, they call it managing partner, yep. but she's really the CEO of Ed Jones, Edward Jones. They manage $1.3 trillion. Yes, indeed. Barry, how do you always get to my guests before I do? <laughs> Barry, I'll be tuning in. Thanks for that, Barry Rittles. Time to bring in Ty Lopez now, Executive Chairman of Retail E-Commerce Ventures. And Ty deals with basically distressed retail brands. So Ty, what, what exactly do you do and, and sort of how much choice do you have these days? <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, there's a lot of choice. Choice is growing here. You know, we've got a interesting environment with COVID. We started buying before COVID. We bought Dress Barn last year in uh, November 2019. So the opportunity's been there, but it's certainly, there's more choice and more attractive valuations that we can purchase at, you know. Now tell us exactly what you're buying, um, because so some of the, the, the brands that you've bought are Dress Barn, as you said, also Pier One, Models, also Linens and things. So these were bankruptcies that we sort of watched happen in front of our very eyes. Did you just buy the names? Did you buy the assets? Did you buy the intellectual property? And, and how much for? Yeah, so each deal has been different. Some of the brands were off-market, like Franklin Mint and Linens and things. Those weren't bankruptcies when we bought them. They have been, you know, in the past. Franklin Mint was never bankrupt. So everyone was different. Pier 1, we bought at an auction in July for $31 million. We bought the IP, the intellectual property. I mean, pretty much you get the whole brand and you get the all that that includes. But we've chosen, because we're e-commerce specialists, to let the stores, for the most part, close. The, sh- the stores were already closing. We still have the option to open back brick and mortar, but obviously we want to see how COVID shakes out before we start you know, opening a whole bunch of stores. These stores are kind of what got these brands in trouble, not just because of COVID, but because they signed leases assuming a certain amount of people were would visit brick and mortar, but every day Amazon and e-coms take a stronger place. Yeah, so. exactly. So what is your plan? Why even spend, I mean, $31 million doesn't sound like a lot for Pier 1, let's put it that way, but why even spend that if you know the, the business model just doesn't work anymore? Yeah, so if, if take Pier 1 or Dress Barn. These brands are beloved. Um, you know, if you watch the social media, you know, and when PR1 was going out, people were sad and people have been shopping there. It's a 60-year-old brand. So we don't actually think that the brands are broken. We think that the trust uh, is there as strong as ever with the brand. People have liked Pier 1, and it's hard. You try to, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs try to build businesses from scratch. I've done that before. My business partner and I have done that before. But it takes a long time to build um what we call branded awareness. So if you look at Pier 1, has over 90% branded awareness. Out of 10 Americans, if you say, do you know Pier 1, nine say yes. And it's really hard to do that if you start a brand from scratch. 
it's almost impossible. I mean, Google did it, obviously. But for the most part, I think that piggybacking off the trust that's already there and bringing the brands into the new e-commerce world is a very viable. And it's going very well with Dressborn and the brands we've been doing so far. Are you trying to put everything you buy in, in one retail marketplace or, or what will be the future for, for these brands? <laughs> Me and my business partner were just talking about that. Certainly there's an option to create kind of Bring an Amazon in. competitor, <laughs> you know, and you have all the brands there. Right now, each brand has its own website, but we are switching more to a marketplace model, which was Amazon, Jeff Bezos kind of thesis. So for example, on Pier 1, we're not only selling Pier 1 branded products. If you look at Wayfair, which has gone from a $9 billion valuation earlier this year to $25, $30 billion, they allow other people, any vendor to sell. So we're kind of hybridizing the old Pier 1 with the newer business models like Amazon and Wayfair. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, will you continue to sort of buy willy-nilly, sort of, uh, so, you know, clothes, furniture, sports, linens, or will you try to specialize in one area? <laughs> um, I don't I mean, mean that to be insulting. No, 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 it's fine. There's a little method to our madness, but um, I think we like the thought of going into different verticals, different industries, so we've done that on purpose. So, for example, instead of buying five clothing brands, we'd like to buy one strong one and then buy one home goods. And then we bought, you know, Models is Sportings and Franklin Mint is Collectibles. And so we like, we like branching out. You know, there's last I counted, there's about 13, trillion, 13 industries that, do, that have over a trillion of revenue. We'd like to be in all 13 of those. Uh, my kind of mentor that I've never met is Warren Buffett. And I like his approach to building a real diversified holding company. We're a holding company. We're not a fund. Yeah. So we actually own the majority of the assets, you know, so we like the diversity. So Ty, we're out of time, but what's, what, what will be next? I mean, where do you go to look for these auctions? How do they pop up for you? We're looking more at off market deals. The auction space is getting more crowded and more competitive. We have a new acquisition that I, I'll be able to announce in a week. Oh. So <laughs> it's a it's bigger. It's the biggest brand we've ever bought. And oh my gosh, we'll have to do a competition for our listeners it. to write in, and and whoever gets it right gets a chance yeah. to uh, to have a lunch if with they or something. It, I'd be pretty impressed. Oh, all right. Well, it's out there now. You know how to reach us, Ty. Thanks for joining, Ty Lopez, Executive Chairman of Retail E-Commerce Ventures. A fascinating conversation. And it is time to bring in Sarah Ponzak now, cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg. So we were looking at equities with Dave Wilson earlier, Sarah. What we didn't really talk about is the dollar index, for example, which has been very, very volatile. We're down below 93 again. Some of this, of course, on euro and sterling, because that's they're the two biggest components for the DXY. But what else is going on? There was some discussion that we would see the safe haven trade of the dollar return. But like you said, we have seen fluctuations lately, volatility. If I look at the Bloomberg dollar spot index, for example, higher on Monday, lower on Tuesday, higher yesterday. And today yeah. we are just about flat. It, it's really difficult to disseminate any direct trend here. It is notable, though, to point out the fact that if you zoom out and you look at a more historical perspective, we're still hovering just around this lowest level since 2018. So still dealing with a depressed dollar, not seeing 
too much reaction or change that would change the trend any which way, but also very notable today is just the bond market. Yes, 10-year treasury yield still above 90 basis points. I look at my screen right now, 0.9193%. However, that is down from above 97 basis points just yesterday and this morning as well, earlier overnight. Uh, so we are seeing this change take hold, uh, albeit a relatively small one, but still down six basis points or so on the day. This after that CPI print came in lighter than expected. Some economists are now starting to wonder if it's true that, yes, we had seen inflation start to pick up after those immediate initial lockdowns. Well, are we going to get to a point now where it's going to start fading? We might see the trend even trend downwards if we start to see worries, restrictions over rising COVID-19 case take hold as well. And at that point, we have restrictions coming through from governments. Being here in New York City, we know what we are about to face starting tomorrow with a relatively light restrictions, but we don't know what's going to be coming down the pipeline. At the same time, you have to wonder if people are going to self-govern, self-restrict, self-police, get worried themselves and start pulling back on economic activity, and then the impact that has on inflation and the expectations for the reflation trade going forwards. I mean, that's what the Fed would say, right? The Fed doesn't see any uh, inflation anywhere in the future? Absolutely not. We know the Fed would like to be on hold for the next couple of years. They have baked it into their forecast. They don't expect inflation to get above 2%. Even if inflation does get above 2%, we know that they have now changed uh, their outlook, their ways of governing to fate the flexible average inflation targeting method. So they're likely not to increase interest rates, even if we are just above 2% for some time. Now, we have not seen how this is going to work actually in practice. We're not entirely sure, and we're going to have to pay attention to the Fed's words going forwards. But the Fed's promise and Wall Street's take of the Fed's promise is that we are not going to see interest rates rise for some time. So that begs the question, even if we are seeing nominal rates rise, how high can nominal rates go if we know that the Fed is not going to step off the yield curve? Oil today is a big story. We're seeing the barrel of WTI above $42 a barrel, which, you know, on the face of it doesn't sound like much, but it's been a long time since we've seen $42 plus. This is because OPEC is sort of trying to face reality as opposed to what it would like the world to look like. Right. It's all real, all relative when you, when you talk about oil prices. We were stuck around $40 for so long when it comes to WTI crude oil. The fact that we are now nearing it on $42 a barrel, well, it seems like maybe you're getting a little bit of a breakout. This is the highest in September. Uh, back then, prices were 42.76 a barrel. So we do see prices trending higher. It does help with OPEC on the supply side of the equation. You also just have to factor in the positive news that we got from Pfizer on the vaccine front. That certainly helps oil prices as well. Because if you think about if we do get a vaccine sooner rather than later, what is that going to help? What is that going to inspire? Well, maybe it will reintroduce airline travel. It will reintroduce cruise line travel. People may be getting in their cars more often. Well, that means we need more gasoline. We need more oil. So therefore, we could see oil prices rise off of the back of not just supply, but also the demand picture too. That also just filtering into energy prices. Pretty unbelievable. If you looked through the close yesterday, the S&P 500 energy sector, the best performing sector, up 16%. That's on track for the best week on record ever for the energy sector. Interestingly, gold, which did gain when we were waiting for the Pfizer result, is way down now at uh, below $1,880 an ounce, right, Sarah? Right. So I, I was speaking with a, 
a strategist over at Man Solutions yesterday who works in their multi-asset solutions group. And I was asking him about gold because it has been a little bit wonky lately, considering the fact that earlier in the year, the story was that gold was acting as a hedge against inflation. Well, what happened earlier this week? It was that we got the positive vaccine news, the inflation trade took hold, we saw yields rise, we saw inflation expectations rise, yet gold moved lower. So it wasn't necessarily acting as that inflation hedge. It was acting as the opposite. And he said gold is an interesting one. And it's been really difficult when you look at cross asset correlations this year. Gold has been correlated to both bonds and stocks in different ways and at different times. So really nailing down the gold trade uh, is a hard one over the short term because it still acts as a short term hedge against inflation, but also it's a safe haven asset. So those are two different stories. The inflation bet is a positive one, one of growth, one of reflation. Whereas if you are looking for a safe haven in gold, that's not necessarily the same story. Uh, so interesting takes on gold there. And investors are saying it's, it's kind of been a difficult one to play as of late. Real quick, what will you be working on today, Sarah? Uh, working on today, so I'm actually working on a story about retail investors. It'll be for the weekend, so keep an eye on it. Basically, the moral of the story is have retail investors been lucky this year or are they skillful? Wow. Sarah, great story. Can't wait to read your conclusions and the conclusions of those you speak to. That is Sarah Ponzak, Chief Cross Asset Reporter here <laughs> at Bloomberg, and uh, she's Chief Cross Asset Reporter in this studio anyway, and she will be back with us later on. What are you supposed to do with these markets? One day up, one day down, vaccine news sending markets higher and then markets sort of getting a dose of reality the next day. Hans Olsen is Chief Investment Officer for Fiduciary Trust in Boston and joins us now with hopefully some advice. Hans, thanks for joining. What are we supposed to make of these markets and, and whether they're correctly priced and what exactly is priced in? Yeah, yeah. Good morning, Vani. I think we're, what we're seeing is sort of the, the inevitable churn after a very nice move over the last month. And, and I think you have to step back and, and first look at the path of the economy. And then from there, um, then you can uh, you know, adjust your portfolio accordingly. From that perspective, uh, our base case continues to be that we're going to see a W-shaped type of recovery. So we've seen the first V, and that was pretty pronounced. And we are in the uh, beginning stages of, I think, what the second V. And the question is whether it will be severe or not. I don't tend to think so, but it was certainly is going to be impacted by the winter wave of COVID infections. And then, of course, that next round of stimulus that we've all been waiting for. Uh, and, and once we start to see that, uh, I think markets can um, stage a, a more a convincing rally from here. Without a doubt, markets appear to be pricing a recovery. You're seeing it in the broadening and the deepening of, of stocks. You're seeing it in the shape of the yield curve, and indeed, even in the in the price action or the yield of the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Um, all are very encouraging signs, um, but it's still a bit early. But Hans, how can you have a recovery with a 6.9% unemployment rate? Well, you know, that's, that's the thing, right? I mean, it's where it's coming down from. And, and we would hopefully see, continue to see unemployment fall. The numbers that we had this morning are encouraging, um, but we're not there yet. And, you know, it, 
by all accounts, we're probably another year away from, um, you know, getting to where we would really like to be in all of this. And again, it's all going to be dependent upon, uh, do we get a vaccine? Is it uh, distributed at scale and its effectiveness? Um, so, and, and of course, the companion to that is, do we get another round of stimulus to help the economy along until we get to resolution of uh, the pandemic? Does there come a payback time, Hans, for all the stimulus? Well, that's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So we have spent an enormous amount of money in the service of supporting the economy during the pandemic. Uh, The budget deficit has exploded. Uh, We're going to have to finance uh, somewhere between another, what, two to three trillion dollars this year, depending upon what the stimulus looks like. Uh, It's important to remember, even before this happened, Vani, the the pandemic broke out, we were running a, a trillion dollar deficit, which is pretty unusual at that point in the at the point that we were in the economic cycle when things were really quite good. Um, So that does have to get financed. And the price at which that gets financed remains an open question. How much the Fed is going to have to buy versus the price at which, um, you know, the private investor will buy treasury debt will, will have to be seen at this point. So Hans, you know, if you had been a retail investor and you decided you, you didn't know what was going on, so you were just going to sort of leave everything where it was, you probably wouldn't have done too badly, right? But is that continuing to be the advice from, from somebody like you? Well, I, I think I think the notion of not trying to trade an election uh, is, is a very good notion indeed. And we saw that uh, be exactly the case in this election, given all the sturm und drang around uh, the election and the run up to it. Um, you know, from some clients I've heard, I heard from, you know, one would have thought that it was the end of the world. And, and, and clearly it wasn't, right? Everything is going to work out fine. I think the larger question is, is the market ready to rotate um, from the COVID-led stocks uh, of the last nine months or so into a broader market participation? And I think the answer there is yes. We're starting to see efforts at that. It's never linear, right? It, it, it never happens overnight. It takes time for that uh, that. that that sort of uh, rotation wave to form. But I think that's going to play out over the next four to, to, to six months that we should start to see some of the out-of-favor names start to participate. And indeed, we might even see some of the, um, you know, the terrible laggards in the international markets finally begin to, to perk up. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic on that. Is 60-40 still the way to go? Yeah, that, that's going to be the $64 million question, right? Um, I think it is evolving. Yes, for, for the most part. But I think in order to maintain um, uh, your spending power, you're going to have to spend total return, which is going to force, Bonnie, I think higher uh, portfolio turnover than it has in the past, which is, which is going to be a bit of a mindset on the part of some investors. So yes, for now, but um, with a qualification that you're going to have to realize some of your capital appreciation in order to maintain your spending power. So if you are going to stay 60-40, be a little bit more active than you might normally be. Exactly. And the way you get that 40 and how you invest that 40 is going to be very different than the way you've done in the past. So, you know, whether it's mortgages, different types of credit and the like, uh, it it can no longer be simply sovereign debt or munis. Finally, Hans, and briefly, are you invested or would you, I mean, you're fiduciary trust, so you're invested everywhere, I guess, but how much outside the U.S. would you be looking? 
Yeah, well, we've been underweight the U.S. Uh, of our equity exposure. We're probably about 35% of that right now, 35, 38% outside the U.S. I would love an opportunity to to bring some of that money abroad again, um, but but not quite yet. That is fascinating. That is a good chunk of the portfolio. Hans, we'll have to get you back soon to talk about what exactly is in there. Hans Olsen is Chief Investment Officer for Fiduciary Trust in Boston, and we appreciate his time today. Some sage advice there, and of course, everybody doing their best to try to figure out what is exactly going on in the world and how long it's going to continue on for. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.